0: Hi, I'm Dan Primack, and welcome to Axios Recap. Today's Friday, April 16th. New home construction is up, jobless claims are down, and we're digging into the legacy of the late Bernie Madoff. Bernie Madoff died on Wednesday in a federal prison hospital in North Carolina at the age of 82. He'd been suffering from severe kidney disease and passed away 11 years into a 150 year sentence for running the largest Ponzi scheme in US history. In fact, it was so big, so brazen, that it might've even made Charles Ponzi blush. For those not familiar with the story, Madoff at one point really was a successful, legitimate Wall Streeter, in part by being an early adopter of technologies that would come to dominate securities trading. And that success, helped Madoff quietly secure billions of dollars in investments, some from institutions like charities and hedge funds and pension plans, some from families and individuals. But the big secret kept even from Madoff's sons who worked at his firm was that Madoff at some point stopped actually investing. Instead, he paid returns to existing investors out of deposits from new ones. And when the market began cratering in 2008 and clients pulled out their money, the whole thing collapsed quickly and devastatingly for Madoff clients, two of whom soon after took their own lives. If you're already familiar with the story, it may be because you read a book called Wizard of Lies by Diana B. Henriquez or saw the HBO film version starring Robert De Niro and Michelle Pfeiffer. So we want to talk to Diana Henriquez about why Madoff mattered, what changed as a result of his scheme, and if she thinks there's another Bernie out there now. We're joined now by Diana B. Henriquez. Let's start kind of big picture here. Even for those who maybe followed the Madoff saga, what's the simplest, easiest way to understand what Bernie did?
1: Bernie ran a Ponzi scheme, and a Ponzi scheme is one of the simplest fraud crimes there is. You rob Peter to pay Paul. That's the basic crime. You pay the promised returns to your early investors with cash you've taken in from subsequent investors. There's no actual investing going on at all. It's just a transfer of money encased in a lie about what you're doing. And that's what he did. And he did it for a remarkably
0: long time. Speaking of that remarkably long time, do you remember the first time you either heard of or met Bernie Madoff?
1: I do, actually. Uh, I was a writer at Barron's, and uh, Bernie had just pioneered, as he pioneered many Wall Street innovations, the after-hours trading of New York Stock Exchange-listed stocks. He and two other small uh, wholesale trading houses would pick up trading in these big board stocks the minute the big board closed. And if you're a reporter and news breaks in the Middle East that's going to affect the oil stocks and the stock exchange is closed, who are you going to call? That's when I learned to call Bernie Madoff and find out what their after-hours trading was showing about the market, oil stocks, particular sectors. And that's when I got to know Bernie. This will sound very strange to some of your listeners. Yes, there was a time when the stock exchange actually
0: closed. As a reporter, the idea of the stock exchange actually closing sounds fantastic, and I I wish we could go back to that. There's obviously been a lot made in retrospect about how there were warnings, uh, literally warnings given to the SEC about what Madoff was doing. Did you hear any rumblings of problems before he got arrested?
1: I did not. Now, it must be said, I did not cover investment management. I covered market regulation, market structure, and those were areas where Bernie was an important voice. He was one of the people who can legitimately claim to have been one of the founders of NASDAQ. He helped write the rule book for NASDAQ. He helped put NASDAQ back together again after the 1987 crash. That produced congressional testimony. There were uh, two stories in 2001, quickly eclipsed by the other events of 2001, it must be said, um, that, uh, said that revealed that he was managing money. One was in Barron's and one was in a, a small hedge fund newsletter. Those produced questions for Bernie, which he deftly and with great confidence was able to deflect. He had answers for everyone. And the important thing to remember about a trusted criminal like Bernie Madoff is that people tend to resolve any questions in his favor. They give him the benefit of the doubt always. They would believe Bernie, accept his explanations really without even checking the bottom line.
0: Is that one of the lessons or one of the legacies of Bernie Madoff that, that success begets trust, even, even if that success is not legitimate?
1: Absolutely. And his success was legitimate. That must be said. He built a powerhouse wholesale trading desk, one of the largest traders in volume of Nasdaq stocks. That firm ran a completely legitimate operation, barely a ding on its regulatory record. The fraud was in a separate floor downstairs from that business. He had a perfect cover story, a completely legitimate business that you could have investigated until the cows came home, and you would not have found so much as an a, a, a I or a T out of place. So that that was his cover. But you're right. It is a danger that when uh, people develop a reputation as being credible and trustworthy, we drop our guard. But, you know, scientists tell us we're kind of hardwired to trust one another anyway So that's our going in position. And boy, that's an enormous gift for con men like Bernie Madoff.
0: You wrote uh, the obit for Bernie Madoff in The New York Times the other day. And one of the things you wrote was that it was the SEC's, quote, most humiliating failure in its 75 year history. What, if anything, do you think has changed at the SEC as a result of the Madoff revelations?
1: They really pulled up their socks in dealing with whistleblowers. They had had a haphazard catch-as-catch-can system. I mean, it was always like whistleblowers were wasting their time, you know. And when it became clear that they had received a few credible reports of doubt about Bernie and had ignored them, they pulled that together into the office of the whistleblower with incentives for people to report fraud that they become aware of. And then initially, there was a big surge in budget money for the SEC, In the aftermath of the Madoff scandal and the meltdown in in 2008, money was surged into the SEC that allowed it to upgrade computer systems, to bring in more uh, computer-savvy personnel, and that is still uh, a legacy of their reaction.
0: And Diana, let me ask you the flip side of the SEC. What hasn't changed?
1: What hasn't changed is a commitment to innovative enforcement, one of the big conundrums really of the 2008 crisis is the paucity of criminal prosecutions the failure of financial regulators to bring you know a violation of fiduciary duty home to the people who did it not the abstract corporations that did it the banks and the uh, and the investment banks but the people who did it and to some extent I blame Bernie for that, and let me tell you why. Bernie became the poster child for the betrayals of Wall Street in 2008. I mean, the whole country felt like Wall Street had ripped them off with a reckless indifference to what consequences there were, and everybody was angry at, quote, Wall Street. That was a very amorphous thing. Bernie comes along, and who better captured the idea of reckless criminal indifference to the harm that he did but Bernie Madoff? So he almost became like the scapegoat for that uh, meltdown.
0: You talked about the the kind of lack or apparent lack of enforcement. Do you believe part of that is because really almost since Bernie was put away, you've had this bull run in in the financial markets? In other words, if we hadn't had the 08 crisis, Bernie Madoff might still be in his penthouse with with clients.
1: Well, he would would have passed away now with a very noble funeral attended by all of the top financial figures on the street. But you're right the meltdown of 08 was the immediate cause of his unraveling. Not because people began to suspect him, but because he allowed people to get their money out on 15 days notice. Most other hedge funds required much longer time. So when his hedge fund clients needed cash, as they did that fall, who are you going to turn to? They took their money out of Bernie's accounts, and he ran out of cash to cover their withdrawals. So yes, if he could have held on, if the Meltdown hadn't happened if it had ended faster. If the hedge fund world had recovered a little bit quicker, yeah, he would have made it through. He, but remember, he'd survived any number of previous market meltdowns. He admits the crime began in the early '90s. I think it began in the began in the mid '80s. But whichever one of us is right, um, he had survived a whole bunch of market um, uh, ups and downs without his fraud being exposed. So he might have made it through this one too.
0: Diana, how would you contrast what attracted people to Madoff with what's maybe attracting people to some of these so-called meme stocks like GameStop, et cetera, or would you not?
1: Most of Madoff's investors, with the exception of a handful of the very early top investors, most of Madoff's investors were seeking security and safety. They were not seeking some, you know, life-changing win on GameStop. I mean, he broke the rules for Ponzi schemes because he did not promise instant riches, you know, double your money in six months. He did not attract people looking for that kind of big payday, that kind of magical uh, win in the marketplace. He attracted people who were scared witless about what was happening in the market, didn't understand it, didn't understand derivatives and algorithm trading and all of that complex stuff. And they put all their affairs in Bernie's hands and trusted him. So it's a different kind of... Uh, investment appeal. The people I worry about are those who think that they're being safe uh, and, and conservative uh, because they're giving their money to this person they trust. And what they need to know is that your trust is blinding you to whatever red flags you ought to see.
0: I heard uh, Andrew Ross Sorkin of The Times speaking on TV the other day about how he had gone down to that prison and done some interviews with Bernie. And he said that when he would, he would talk to Madoff for five or six hours, and then he would go in the parking lot and mentally question everything he had just heard, not knowing if any of the stories were true or if they were fabricated. Did you trust what he was telling you? No, of course not.
1: By the time I was able to interview him for my book, The Wizard of Lies, I was fortunate in that he had refused to see me for so long that I had been forced to interview everybody else on the planet that could contribute any knowledge about what he did. So when he finally said, yes, come on down, I'll talk to you, there wasn't a lot I needed to learn from him. There were some personal family details that that I wanted to ask him about. Some uh it, you know, I had one, one side version of an interaction, I wanted to get his side of it for whatever that was worth. It wasn't like I went down there dependent on what Madoff told me about his story. I was pretty well prepared before I showed up um, to to weigh what he was saying. And I was careful to ask him questions that that only he could answer.
0: Final question for you. Do you believe there is another Madoff sort of figure currently doing business today that's maybe being shielded in part just because the markets are on fire and and there is no downturn that we've seen lately?
1: Well, it's certainly true that a rising market can cover a multitude of sins and a multitude of Ponzi schemes. The statistics tell us that a fresh Ponzi scheme surfaces in the United States about every week, about every six to seven days, which means, of course, right now there are Ponzi schemers out there at work. And one thing I can tell you about them, I can tell you that every single one of them is an admired, trusted, respected figure in the community right now, because that's who runs Ponzi schemes. You'd trust people with your money who seem admirable, creditworthy, uh, successful. So right now, the Ponzi schemes that will unravel next month and the month after that and later next year are being run by people that you would never suspect of being Ponzi schemers. That's how Bernie got away with it for so long.
0: Diana B. Henriquez, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Happy to be here. Thanks.
0: Welcome back. What we're watching today is coverage of the horrific mass shooting at a FedEx facility in Indianapolis, where eight people lost their lives, including the murder. Overall, there have been at least 45 mass shootings since that Atlanta spa massacre on March 16th, as defined by incidents in which four or more people are shot. That's workplaces, schools, supermarkets, streets, basically anywhere that people congregate. It's the frustrating flip side of the pandemic coin that as one public health crisis subsides, another reemerges. And despite President Biden pledging some minor executive actions on gun purchases, a broader, call it more holistic approach to the issue remains out of legislative grasp. So instead, we just wait. We wait for the next headline, the, the next TV story, and quietly pray that the photos we see aren't of a place or of people we know. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Naomi Shaven, Sabina Sangani, and Alex Sugiara. Be sure to listen to the feed tomorrow morning for the latest in our special series of hard truths on systemic racism. Have a great National ex Benedict Day. And we'll be back Monday with another Axios Recap.